decade that was, the 1980s. This was a little bit of my heyday, too. I told you last week the 70s was like my Christmas morning heyday, all my toys. The 80s was kind of like my growing up. I went into high school in 81, and I graduated college in 89. So, you know, we're in the meat of my bell curve right now with, with the 80s. The 80s, you know, it's funny, looking back, I didn't realize how much happened in the 80s. At the time, it didn't seem like, well, that much when you're living it, right? But, but now you look back and, and you start to see how different it was. For a lot of people in the United States, the 70s had been a troubled decade. We talked about it last week. You know, you had the, the radical countercultural movements of the 60s, the Watergate scandal, the Vietnam War, uncertainty, the Middle East, economic crisis. Uh, America's confidence just eroded down to nothing. By the end of Jimmy Carter's presidency in 1980, the idealistic dreams of the 60s had kind of disappeared. Inflation, foreign policy turmoil. Remember, remember the Iran hostage crisis? Crime. In response, many Americans began to embrace a, a, a new way, a new thought process. Conservatism in social, economic, and political life during the 80s was characterized by the Reagan Revolution. Now, the 80s was oftentimes also, um, I don't know, celebrated or commemorated by, by materialism, consumerism, kind of run wild, right? The concept of yuppies exploded on the scene. There were not just movies, but blockbuster movies. There, there was not just four channels, there was 40 channels. Everybody wanted their MTV. Remember when MTV used to have music on it? My kids have never seen that. It, remember when MTV started, there was like five videos and they just kept playing them over and over and over and over? It was, I'll, I'll be up here, and then it was bow, wow, wow, and we go, bang. It was the decade of decadence, right? It was characterized by Gordon Gecko's famous line that greed is what? Good. Greed is good. See, if the 60s was about liberalism and activism, the 80s was about finding your purpose in the pursuit of pleasure. And, the de and, and a new term came on the scene in the 80s, conspicuous consumption. What an awesome term. I mean, the more it cost, the more expensive it looked, the more we needed it. And, and, and for the decade, kind of your self-worth became very much tied to your self-advancement. In the 80s, in many ways, the purpose of life was tied to the amassing of stuff. We were, in a sense, what we had. And we judged each other's worth in the 80s, even though we, we, we'd say we knew better. The reality is, oftentimes, we judged our own worth and others based on how much we made. Money and fame and success and consumptions became our idols. That was the 1980s. See, there was another decade, the uh, 40s, BC 740s to be exact. And to a people who themselves had gotten wrapped up in a different form of idolatry. This prophet Isaiah that we speak of often at Christmas time because he prophesied a lot about Christ. Isaiah wrote a prophecy to his people about getting caught up in idolatry that sounds like it would be written directly to the people of the 80s. And if we're, if we're honest, things haven't changed all that much from then. Here's what he wrote to his people. He said, how foolish are those who manufacture idols? These prized objects are really worthless. The people who worship idols don't know this, so they're all, in a sense, put to shame. He wrote... Who but a fool would make his own God an idol that cannot help him one bit? 
So he tries to explain it to his people about what they were doing. He says, the blacksmith, he stands at his forge to make a sharp tool. He pounds it and he shapes it with all his might. His work, it makes him hungry and weak. It makes him thirsty and faint. The woodcarver, he measures a block of wood and he draws a pattern on it. He works with his chisel and plane. He carves it into a human figure. He gives it human beauty and he puts it in a little shrine. And then, Isaiah can't believe this, he says, and then he uses part of the wood to make a fire. With it, he warms himself and bakes his bread. And then, yes, it's true, he makes the, takes the rest of it and makes himself a god to worship. This is what he says about this. Such stupidity and ignorance. The person who made the idol never stopped to reflect, why, it's just a block of wood. I burned half of it for heat. I used it to bake my bread and roast my meat. How can the rest of it be a god? Should I bow down to worship a piece of wood? I love this. The poor, deluded fool feeds on ashes. He trusts something that can't help him at all. And he sums it up this way. He goes, yet he cannot bring himself to ask, is this idol that I'm holding in my hands a lie? How good is that? Is this idol that I'm holding in my hands, is this all this stuff that I worked for, is, is the stuff that I'm trying to show you about me, is this all just a lie. See, idols for Israel in 740 BC, and for us in the 80s and, and in 2017, they're often something that we not only just draw safety from, security from, but maybe, and probably more problematically, idols become something that we draw our identity from. And so to his culture and to our culture, Isaiah prophesied the coming of one who could change that, who could break this need for idols. When he wrote this, he said, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called, names are important in the Old Testament, and he'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, which is what we're going to talk about, and Prince of Peace. Now, see, if you're here two weeks ago, we talked about the 60s. In the 60s, man, we needed a counselor. We needed somebody who knew everything about us and, and still believed in us, still loved us, who was qualified to lead us like no, no other and to guide us through the, the craziness of life. Now, in the 70s, we talked about this last week. In the 70s as a culture, we stopped believing in ourselves. We stopped believing in our country. And we stopped believing in our God. And, and Isaiah shows up and goes, no, 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 you have a mighty God. And if you just understood how mighty he was, and Isaiah did, this prophecy is in Isaiah 9, but in Isaiah 6, God had given him a vision of what it looked like on the throne, if you were here last week. And Isaiah got a glimpse of God as we tried to get together last week. Last week was one of my favorite all-time sermons, if you were here, and it was really, really good. If you weren't, I'm really, really sorry, but it was really, really good. Um, I'm trying my best today. Uh, so Isaiah got a glimpse of God's glory, right, and it changed him. And so he said, don't give up. You, you have a mighty God. And so in the 80s, I, I, I think because our self-worth got so tied into self-advancement and, and, and the idolatry of our things became so strong in the 80s, what we needed was something different. We needed, we needed to be shown who we were. We needed uh, to have a newfound sense of identity. And I think to people like us, Isaiah said, I, I need you to understand something. You actually have a father. You have a dad. 
You need to stop looking after idols. You need to stop pursuing your worth from them. But you need to instead look to your father for your identity. And you need to look to your father for what your inheritance is. Isaiah says this Messiah, this king, he's going to relate to you differently. This God is not coming as a king that you're going to bow down to. He won't show up as a warrior that you're going to need to be afraid of. And he's not going to be a deity that comes on the scene requiring sacrifice, work, or effort. No, here's what you're going to get. You are getting a father. This is a radical concept of deities in Isaiah's day, and it's a radical concept in ours. The truth is, it's still radical when you really understand it. You didn't get a king on Christmas. You didn't get a warrior on Christmas. You didn't even just get a god on Christmas. You got a daddy. Now, this is a a stunning revelation to his people. So stunning, it would be like mouth-gaping time. Isaiah is saying that God, through this Messiah, is going to reveal himself to you in a new way, and it's going to be as a father. God has been revealing himself over time. Let me explain. Paul tries to explain this all through the scriptures. In, in, in his letter to the Romans, Romans chapter 1, here's what Paul says about God's revelation of himself. He says, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities... His eternal power and his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. Paul says, look, anybody on planet Earth can look out into the universe like we did last week and and can see and draw the conclusion that there's got to be something at work. I didn't get here out of nowhere. You can bring me all the way back to the Big Bang if you like, but at the end of the day, something still was out there that got banged, you know? It came from somewhere. In fact, Paul says, here's here's what the revelation also showed. The revelation also showed that whatever it was had strength and power. We looked at that last week. But then over time, God doesn't just leave us with this kind of faraway, distant understanding of who he is, right? It wasn't okay just to be a guy on a desert island that goes, well, I clearly see that there must be something. Paul goes, no, no, God didn't leave it that way. Here's what God did. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. This is who Isaiah was. Isaiah was a prophet. Chapter 9, this verse in chapter 9, these four names of who Jesus is going to be called, this is a prophecy. A God is speaking through Isaiah to his people, explaining, giving a glimpse of what God is like. But then, the writer of Hebrews He gives us a final and grand and complete revelation of God when he explains this. He says, but in these last days, he, this is God, he has spoken to us by his son. This is Jesus, whom he appointed heir of all things. Jesus is getting everything. He is the heir to the throne of God. Everything that is God's is being given to Christ. And through him also he made the universe saw this last week. The sun is the radiance of God's glory. The sun is the exact representation of his being. The sun is sustaining all things by his powerful word. And so ultimately, the revelation process, it trickles down from creation, where everybody would at least understand there's something, to the prophets who began to kind of, to explain it a little bit. You know, it'd be called Wonderful Counselor Almighty God, so you're getting glimpses of it. And then it comes in its fullness in Jesus. Jesus is the full, complete, 
whole revelation of who God is. If you are confused about who God is, what he looks like, how he thinks, how he loves, what he hates, study Jesus. His words, his actions, they're the complete and final revelation to man of who God is. You will not be getting any more prophets. Everything there is to know about God has been revealed to us through Jesus. But now also note this. The writer of Hebrews is very, very particular in saying that this revelation comes through a son. Now see, have you ever wondered why God sent, uh, why he came, why Jesus decided to come? I mean, Jesus could have just come down. Why did he come in the form of a son? Now there's a lot of theological reasons that I could tell you about, and half of you would probably be asleep by the end of them. But, but maybe one thing to think about is this, that the reason that God shows up, or Jesus shows up as a child is that God wants to reveal himself fully to you, this revelation of God, this full revelation of who he is to you. He didn't come as a prophet, a teacher. He didn't come as a priest, a king, a pastor, a president. He reveals himself fully through a son because God reveals himself to you as a father. God wants you to see him, to relate to him more than anything else. What he wants to show you is that he is the perfect father. Now, many of you over time, I know this, you hear these words, father, and you recoil a little bit because all of us were not blessed with good dads, right? I know that. I have friend, my, one of my best friends in the world. He doesn't even talk to his dad. He actually, he used to, he used to hit his mom. And, and when he got big enough, he actually threw his dad out of the house. So when I tell you, like, God is your father. I understand that there could be a recoiling there. I, I know I had a really good dad. Some of you might have had good dads. And so even in, in, you hear this and it draws you towards God. But, but please understand, your dad might be good, but he ain't God. Because, because what you see in Jesus, he, he is not a reflection of your earthly father, good and bad. He is the perfection of your eternal father. He's not a reflection of your dad. He's a, he's, a, he's, a perfect, he's the perfection of fatherhood. You and I have an eternal father, not an indifferent deity or an angry old God. You have a perfect father who now wants to relate to you because of what Christ did for us through faith in Jesus, forgiven, restored, renewed, made right in relationship with God. You are invited to relate to God. This is the gift of Christmas. Isaiah picked four things he could tell you about the Messiah that was coming, why Christmas would be important. One of the four was this, you have a father. Now, let me ask you a question. You don't have to be a psychologist, a psychiatrist. You don't need to, to have any degree to know this. You only have to have lived as a human being. What is it that every little boy or every little girl who has ever lived is looking for from their dad? What do they long for from their, their daddy? What do they need to hear? Somebody. A love, affection, approval. We all, we all know that. We feel that, right? Matthew chapter 3. It's in Mark chapter 1. It's the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. God wants to show you how he wants to relate to humanity. 
And, and many of you know the story. Jesus is coming onto the scene. He's going to get baptized by John the Baptist. He's actually a, a part of the Christmas story. You should check that out. But, but now they're both grown. And so Jesus comes to get baptized by John the Baptist in the, in the river. Now, this is a story. If you've been around Mendham for a long time, you know that we baptize lots of people around here. It's very exciting. It's the culmination of our church here. If you haven't been baptized, come see me in June because it's going to be awesome. But We've baptized now hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people, right? Like, it's a really cool thing. So, so when I read this story, I can relate to it a little bit. And so here comes Jesus. He comes down. John and him argue over who should baptize who. Jesus wins. He usually wins these arguments. John baptizes Jesus. Jesus comes up out of the water. Now, I have never had this happen at one of my baptisms yet. So there's clearly something wrong with all of you. I don't know what it is, but... But, but for, for, for Jesus, something strange happens. Jesus comes out of the river, and, and heaven opens, and the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove comes down, and a voice speaks out of heaven, and it says, This is my Son, whom I love, and with him I, I'm well pleased. One version says, This is my beloved Son. What does God want everybody that ever is going to read these Gospels to know? It's in multiple Gospels. What does he want? He could announce anything. He could announce anything. Jesus could come out of the water. The heavens could open. The dove could come down. And God could say, God, thank you for gathering here today. This is the beginning of a new ministry here on earth. Uh, let me start from the beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I'm God. He doesn't do that. Yeah, he, he could have said, this is Jesus, and he is going to be the Lamb of God, which takes away the sins of man. That's all true. He could have said that. He could have said, let me explain to you the concepts of substitutionary atonement and the repeal of the temple sacrificial system. But he doesn't do that. He could say, there was an old covenant that had lots of rules attached to it. This is Jesus. He's got a new set of rules he'd like you to follow. He doesn't do that. What he does is, like in my mind, I'm picturing this father who is so proud of his boy, like his, his chest is so, so proud, like the buttons are dropping off of his shirt. And he breaks through into our realm, and he says, this is my son. This is my boy. I am so proud of this kid. Now, you might read that and go, maybe you never thought about it before. Like, that's what he chose to say. The way God chooses to relate as a father is... It, the perfect revelation of a father. It's not just here. It's almost as if God often can't contain himself over his pride, the pride he has in his children. Check out later in Matthew chapter 17. If, that sound, if this is going to sound familiar. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud covered him and a voice from the cloud said, this is my son whom I love. With him I'm well pleased. Listen to him. I don't just love them, I'm pleased with them. I'm proud of them. Now, I don't know if you're afflicted with this issue. Most of us are. I had a wonderful dad. Um, 
but I, I'm 50 years old, okay? I should be way over this by now, but way over it. Like, I should talk to somebody about this, right? Maybe not 400 of you at a time, but, but I have this deep-seated need to make my father proud. I'm 50, but there's something in me that feels the need to go home and say, hey, Dad, just want to let you know Christmas Eve services had to add a fourth. It's very sad, isn't it? <laughs> it's in there. But you laugh. You, la you know why you laugh? Because you know it's true. It's so deep in us. I don't know if you had a father that, and, and, and if he told you that, but the promise of Christmas is that through Christ, by faith, you have become a son or a daughter of God. And, and with you, you need to hear this, with you, not because of your work, not because of how good you are, how much you've done, but just by grace, by unmerited favor, he not only loves you, I know you know he loves you, I need you to hear this. Your father is so proud of you. Sitting by the pool, not this summer, last summer, I told some of you this story. I was just sitting there minding my own business, right? Had my book out, had some music on, I don't know what happened. I started kind of, kind of I don't know, I started thinking about God. Um, and that's a good thing, right? But all of a sudden, I've never heard the audible voice of God. If you've heard the audible voice of God, that's awesome. But I've never heard the audible voice of God. But every once in a while, like you feel something where you go, oop, right? Like, and so I'm just sitting by the pool minding my own business. And all of a sudden, I hear this very kind of clear thing in my heart that says, John, I'm so proud of you. I never heard that before from God. Now, my, my initial reaction was to go, me? Why are you proud of me? Now, you, you guys might go, well, of course, you know, I, I know this all looks pretty good. Actually, it doesn't even look all that good up here. I, I, you know, but I know what goes through my mind. I know my motivations sometimes aren't all, always pure. I know the things I've said and I've done. I, 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 you know, and, and so when he said to me, John, uh, it was like I fought him. No, you're not. He said, yes, I am. I said, no, you're not. <laughs> he usually wins these arguments. Listen to me. You not only have a father that loves you, your father is proud of you. Zephaniah, he, he was a, a prophet too. He was trying to, he saw this, he was trying to help people understand this father image of God. You know, Zephaniah was a minor prophet. Do you know why we call them the minor prophets? This is, is very deeply theological. It's because their books are short. That's why. And so he's a minor prophet, but he says a pretty major thing. He said, Yahweh is with you. The mighty warrior saves. He takes great delight in you. In his love, listen to this, in his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but he will rejoice over you with singing. Your daddy, I don't have, I got a dad, he never sang over me. I'm kind of glad he didn't, that would have been a little awkward. But your dad in heaven, he sings over you with joy. If you've never heard it, hear it this morning. This is my son, this is my daughter. I'm so pleased with him. So this, 
This Jesus, he's this perfect revelation of who, who God is, and he, he reveals for us this relationship between Father and Son. And he begins to teach about all the things that we deal with on earth on a regular basis and says, you need to start to think about this differently. You need to start to relate to God as a father. So, so his disciples come along and they go, okay, well, help me understand. And, and he goes, okay, uh, what, what? And they said, well, teach us how to pray. Jesus said, okay, when you pray, this is what you should do. You should put your face in the dirt and you should say, I'm unworthy, I'm a pig, I'm, a, I'm gross, I'm bad, and, and I can't even believe you look at me. No. He says, when you pray, here's how you pray. Father. Father. Jesus begins to explain over and over. It's so much different than you think it is. This is how you relate to God. He says, let me, let me show you. He said, which of you, which of you fathers, if your son, if he came along and he asked for a fish, would you give him a snake? I mean, if he asked you for an egg, would you give him a scorpion? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? You see, God wants you to come and ask. You don't come as beggars or pleaders. You're not like a dog trying to get a scrap off the table. You come to him the way my kids come to me when they want something, with bold courage. <laughs> they have access to the one that can provide what they need, and when they come, they come with confidence. My kids do. They know how much I love them. They know how much I care for them. Now, if they're asking for something silly... Right? I, you know, uh, I, you know, I got the iPhone 8, but I really want the 10. You know, that might drop the confidence level down a little bit. But it doesn't mean you shouldn't come. Especially when it's something you need. You see how the relationship is changing here. You now come to God not as beggars, but as sons and daughters. So when you go to him, he wants you to ask. He doesn't grow tired of your prayer. Jesus had this brother named James. James didn't buy the whole Jesus thing, okay? So if you're here this morning, you're going, I'm not so sure about this whole Jesus thing. You're just like Jesus' brother. He wasn't very sure either. In fact, the scripture actually says he thought he was crazy. But some time went by. Seeing a guy come back to life has, a, you know, a habit of kind of changing you. And so James sees this whole thing. And so here's what James said. He goes, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father. The Father of the heavenly lights who does not... see." I don't know if your dad had mood swings. I love my dad, but my dad had some mood swings, right, every once in a while. Like, so, so as a kid, you would learn when to ask for things, right? Like, is it a good thing to ask dad for something the minute he walks in from work? No, right? One of the things my cousins and I learned, they would come on Thanksgiving, and uh, so we got a little older, and we started to figure out how this whole thing worked. So we would start to kind of conspire about when, when the timing was right. And what we noticed is, if you, we always wanted to do something. We saw each other once a year, go to the movies, go roller skating. And so what we realized is, if you waited precisely for about 45 minutes after cocktail hour was over, <laughs> you had a very good shot at getting what you were looking for. Like, on some nights, you could just ask for a 20, and you might get it, you know? Because I, the other thing, my dad, we always knew, don't ask, you know, there was a mood swing coming when he was packing the car for vacation. That was the other thing. Just stay out of his way when he's packing the car for vacation. Just, you know, be in your room and let him tell you when it's time to go. Because I love him, but he wasn't perfect. 
the perfect father in heaven, he does not change like shifting shadows. He's always the same. He's always in love with you, and he's always really proud of you, and always wants you to come to him. That's not going to mean you're going to get everything you ask for. I could have my kids come up and testify to that. It doesn't mean that everything is going to go well or easy. Sometimes in order to create in us to develop character, godliness, holiness, God treats us like sons and daughters. Sometimes to develop within my children, I have had to treat them in ways that they haven't been big fans of. Because I'm, a good, I'm trying to be a good father. Scripture says this, in your struggle against sin, you haven't resisted to the point of shedding your blood like Jesus did. And you have completely forgotten this word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his sons. It says, my son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline. Don't lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines the one he loves. He chastens everyone who he accepts as his sons. If he didn't care... Right? Remember the kid who, whose parents didn't care? How'd that turn out? Scripture says, endure hardship as discipline. Not all of it comes from God. Not everything bad you're going through comes from God. But even if it doesn't, endure, endure hardship as discipline. God's treating you as his children. For what children aren't disciplined by their father? If you're not disciplined, and everyone undergoes discipline, then you're not legitimate. You're not true sons and daughters at all. Moreover, we had human fathers who disciplined us. We respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the Father of spirits and live? They disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good in order that we might share in his holiness. See, the scripture is revealing a whole new way to understand what you're going through. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and a peace for those who have been trained in it. Therefore, I love this. He concludes this way. Therefore, strengthen your feeble arms and your weak knees. Hey, get up. I know, I know it's, all, I know it's not easy all the time, I know. Strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees. Why? Because you are a son or a daughter of God. Jesus and the writers of Scripture, understand this. I know, I know. I know they acknowledge and refer to God as Lord, and I know they refer to him as holy. I know they speak of his hatred of sin. They talk of his judgment and his wrath. But more than anything else, more than any other term, 189 times in the Scripture, what does Jesus call him? Father. 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 Last breath. Breath. On the cross. Father, forgive them for they don't know what you're doing. Father, they're doing. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. One writer said this. He said, being a father is for us the skin that holds all of the other attributes of God together. He said, I don't know how to put my arms around an all-knowing or an all-just God. How do I embrace grace or truth? I don't know, but I can embrace a just and wise and grace-filled father. That I can wrap my arms around and understand. We're called as sons and daughters to be the nuts that don't fall all that far from the family tree. There should be something in our renewed nature where we start to look a little bit like our dad. Jesus said this. He said, love your enemies, do good to them, and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great, and you will be children of the Most High. 
because he's kind to the ungrateful and wicked. So be merciful just as your father is merciful. I, I, I want to I end this with just an understanding of what you've been given on Christmas. Because I want you to wake up on Christmas. I want you to believe in the promise of Christmas. I want you to be like a kid thinking there's going to be a stretch Armstrong under that tree type of like feeling, you know? Here's what Paul wrote to the Galatians. He tried to get, explain it to a couple of different churches, and this is such a key to what happened on Christmas morning. Paul says, when the, time, when the set time had fully come, at just the right time, God sent his son, born of a woman, talking about the virgin birth here, not born of a man, born under the law, right? This is when we, when we were saved by trying to do our best, trying to keep the law, which none of us could. To redeem those under the law, that's us. That we might receive what? What is it that we might receive? This is the whole story. This is it. This is Jesus. He comes at just the right time, born of a virgin. He's going to redeem those under law. Why? What do we get? Adoption to sonship. Another translation put it this way. You got the full rights as sons. Jesus leaves the throne of heaven, comes to a dung-filled manger, lives essentially a nomadic, homeless existence, is crucified on a cross between criminals. Why? To give you like a tenth of a share of that of a son? No, no, no. He did Christmas morning. That baby in the manger is there so that you might receive full adoption, full rights as sons and daughters of God. You might have been willing to settle for a quarter. If you understood what you were getting, you would settle for a quarter, but that's not what he came to give you. He came to give you full rights. No longer a sinner, a son. No longer a rebel under judgment, a daughter. That's the heart of Christmas morning. You become the prodigal son who comes home. The God who waits on the hill who comes for you, he restores full rights. It's as if nothing ever happened. Everything that you were meant to get, the gospel says you get. My dad was a good dad. As earthly dads go, I mean, you're not going to get much of a, a better dad than mine. There's a picture of my dad from a few years ago. Um, so my name is John Henry. Please don't call me that ever again. John, um, proud of my dad, not so much the Henry, but John Henry Eisman Jr. In fact, um, I, I remember when I was a kid, like uh, anytime I, I got any accolades or anything, and you know, they ask you what you want your name to be. I, I was so proud of my dad. I loved him so much, so much. I would always put Junior on everything. And you know, my friends would make fun of me. But for me, it was like the way to honor my dad. Like this is, I'm, I'm my dad's boy. And so that kind of came to a culmination. When I had my, my first son, my oldest son, John, uh, I named him not after me. I named him after my dad. So my son is John Henry Eisman III. My dad's a good man. He was born in Newark in the 40s. He was raised, um, he was raised mostly by his mom because his dad worked in a scissor factory and then got tuberculosis back in the 50s. In the 50s, if you got tuberculosis, they shipped you off to a sanitarium. So uh, my dad, during his teen years, didn't have a father. He, he spent, I think, three or three and a half years in a sanitarium. Um, they didn't have much money. They, uh, neither, none of my grandparents graduated high school. My dad was raised in what he calls a cold water flat, which meant they had no uh, hot water. He said that they took baths on Saturday night. That, that, you know, that was the only time they could afford to heat the water, and they'd get one bath a week. And when he got out of um, high school, he, you know, he didn't have the money to go to college, so he joined the Navy. 
And he was in the Navy for four years, came out of the Navy, and, uh, you know, he didn't really have an, his skill set. It's funny because he, in the Navy, always talked a, a really good game about uh, the things he did in the Navy, the things he did in the Navy, the things he did in the Navy. Recently, we found two things out. Number one, we found out... Uh, we knew he was docked in Chicago, and so we were asking him recently, well, what ports did you visit? It comes to turn out he never left port. Um, so that took away a little of the mystique. And then, uh, then one day we were going through some old stuff. My dad is kind of a tough guy, and he really fancies himself quite a tough guy, and he actually is a pretty tough guy. And one day we were going through some material, and we found his, um, you know, his graduation certificate from the Navy, whatever they call that, his discharge papers, and it says, position, nurse. So that, you know. That was quite a laugh for a while. But he came out, he didn't, really, he didn't really have any formal education, so he was just looking for a job, and he got a job as a teller at a local bank. And he went down there, he started working at the local bank, and, you know, he started raising himself up through into some management stuff. He, he worked at a local branch. And I remember, with some regularity, the branch would get robbed, right? And uh, he'd get held up. And I remember one time, or it happened around Christmas, somebody came in, you know, robbed the bank and took off. But when they, get, they found the guy, they found all the stuff he spent the money on, so they bought it back and gave it to the bank employees. I got a nine-inch black-and-white TV from that guy, so, uh, you, know, you know, God takes things meant for evil and uses them for at least my good in that, in that story. And uh, my dad wanted to, my dad wanted to uh, get ahead, so he knew he had to go back to college, but he had four kids, so what he, he decided he would go at night, and my dad started going to college at night, undergrad, for eight straight years. He'd work all day. He lived in Hackettstown so he could afford a house, but he worked in Bloomfield. That was before Route 80, so he used to drive 46 from Hackettstown to Bloomfield. Then he would go to college at night. I remember as a kid him installing a lock on his door um, so that he could study in there um, and lock the door and that he'd be able to study. But he never missed one of my things ever, ever. He's a really good dad. Uh, you know, Many of you know, some of you know, he got sick a couple weeks ago. It was a bad sickness. He, it was a, it, it, it's a long story, but uh, he got out of the hospital, and I went over to see him two Sundays ago. When, uh, when I went over, he's got this big mangy dog, which I can't stand. That's another story. But uh, I think he likes the dog more than me, and there's some wounds there, too. But um, the dog started jumping on me, and so I turned away from the dog, and I just hear, bang! And I look back. My dad is now 75. He's extremely arthritic and com completely unstable on his feet. And uh, he had fallen back, and I mean, just straight back. And I went running over to him, and he was unconscious, but his eyes were open. He had just gotten out of the hospital. He had just had back surgery. He was making these terrible guttural noises. His hands were kind of palsied in front of him. And, uh, you know, I picked up his head, and I'm holding his head, and his eyes rolled back. And I'm going, Dad, are you all right? It's John. It's John. And uh, I didn't know what to do. I was about to call my wife's a nurse. And uh, for a second, I thought, this is not going to end well right here. And he, he, over time, he came back. But, but an important lesson was learned for me right on the spot. I have a great father, but I don't have an eternal one. My wife learned this lesson this year. She had a great father. She didn't have an eternal one. Renee Billing, who directs all of our ministry here, she learned it last week. She's got, she had a great dad, but she didn't have an eternal one. You have an eternal father. I'm really proud to be John Henry Eisman Jr., but, but I am also really proud, even prouder when I get it, to be the son of the Most High God. And that's who you are. Paul, Paul goes on to say this. He says, because you're his sons, God sent the 
spirit of his son into our hearts. This is probably where we get the God, invite God into your heart, invite Jesus into your heart. God puts the spirit of sonship into our hearts, a spirit that cries out, Abba, best translation, Daddy, Father. Something happens when you come to faith that changes inside of you where God is no longer distant or far or mean or angry or judgmental. What it is, is there's something in you, and I don't know if you felt it last week when we were looking at all those stars and we created that whole sense of awe and you heard all the things worshiping, the stars worshiping, the animals worshiping, we sang. I don't know, but I had something inside of me that just goes, Dad. Daddy. Paul says, and this is where we get messed up. This is where we struggle with our identity and with idolatry. We sometimes think our cars, our houses, our watches, in the 80s we were big on this. This says something about us, like it was our great accomplishment. What I've done, this is my legacy. This is my great accomplishment. But this Christmas, I want you to see something new under the Christmas tree. Here's Here's what the scripture says. You are no longer a slave, but God's child... This is all over. I mean, this father thing is huge in the Bible. We don't talk about it, but this is, this is like the gift of Christmas. You're no longer a slave. You're God's child. And since you're his child, God made you to be an heir. See, before it said Jesus was going to be an heir. Jesus was getting God's stuff. But now it says you're the heir. Do you know what that means? You, as a son and daughter of God, you have an inheritance. Paul is trying to get people to understand this through all of his letters. Here's how he tried to explain it to the Romans. Do you understand this? You get what God has. Like you wanted to stretch Armstrong, right? You get what God has. Paul put it like this to the Romans. Those of you who are led by the Spirit of God, you're the children of God. The spirit you receive, right? We just talked about that. It doesn't make you a slave so that you live in fear. The spirit you receive brought about your adoption as sons. And we cried, Daddy, Father. The spirit testifies with our spirit. We're God's children. And if we're children, then we're heirs. We're heirs of God. We're co-heirs with Christ. If we share in his suffering in order that we also might share in his glory, you... I was talking to the elders about this. One of the elders said, we should wake up every morning dancing. You are going to share in the glory of Christ. I didn't say that. The scripture said that. See, you want a Lexus with a bow in it for Christmas, and you're invited instead to understand the gift that you got is to share in the glory of who Jesus Christ is. Has anybody ever told you that before? Do you understand who you are in Christ? You're co-heirs with Jesus. Does it mean you might share in his suffering? Yeah. But it also means that you're going to share in his glory. What's his is going to be yours. Colossians says that all things were created by Christ for him. Everything exists, finds its meaning when it comes under his control. The Psalms said that Christ one day would be the heir to all that God possesses. Let me put something so you can kind of see it. The Father, speaking to Jesus, says, Ask of me, I'll give you the nations as your inheritance, the very ends of the earth as your possession. When Christ comes to earth, he's going to inherit all things, and because of your faith in him, you are fellow heirs to it. Remember the Sombrero Galaxy? We looked at it last week. This is just one of the things, right? Remember this? We talked about if you went 5.88 trillion miles 
a year. For 29 billion years, you'd get here? Do you understand that's yours? John wrapped it up. He put it this way. See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God, and he can't believe it, so he says it again, and with an exclamation point, and that is what we are. There is nothing. Understand, one writer put this so brilliantly. He said, there's nothing coming down the road for you. There's no accomplishment. There's no purpose. There's no achievement that is going to supplant this as the crowning statement of your entire life. There is no other moment for you. There's nothing that compares. I mean, it's not going to be like you're going to be sitting around going, oh, you know, uh, I, I was the daughter of God, but things went really well at work, and now I'm the assistant to the general manager. Remember back in the old days when you were the son of God and co-heirs with Christ, but you made a killing in bitcoins. It used to be you were the daughter of God Almighty, but now you're Mrs. Witkowski. It's not going to happen. You are the daughter or the son of the Most High God. There is no greater achievement. As the band comes up, you have to understand the gift that you have been given this Christmas. Eternal Father. John put it this way. He said, the true light that gives light to everyone is coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Church, listen to me. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And that is what we are.